Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, I must admit, I'm a little frazzled this morning. Um, I got here early, um, which was a little late for me, but it was 8.30, and everybody else was running late. Um, Jeremy wasn't here. Kaylee wasn't here. My setup team wasn't here. It was 8.30. Uh, for those of you who know that the service starts at 10, you know now why I was frazzled. I've got my girls here with me. I'm confused, like what, where is everyone? Why is the parking lot so empty? And uh, I'm thinking I have to scramble and make communion in 30 minutes, service starts at nine o'clock, and then, it, then I realized, oh, the service starts at 10. So I just have to say like, for those of you who have been either an hour late or an hour early at some point, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, it's been an eventful week in our house, but here we are. Um, not the least of which is like our two-year-old thinks that there's a cow in her room, uh, and it's funny until 2 a.m., right? So I'm a little sleep-deprived, but, but here we are. Um, hey, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into our text. If, you, if you've opened to John 7, go ahead and stay there. We'll be in John 7 all morning long. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and that you've, you've spoken to us through it about who you are and about how we ought to respond to you. We thank you for Jesus and that through texts like this one, you clarify to us who he is and who he claims to be. I pray that as a result of our time this morning that we would grow uh, to look more like you and that you would um, lead us in your spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So several weeks ago, um, if you weren't here, Jeremy shared a story about how he had come to the realization that over time he had lost hearing in one of his ears. Some of you guys remember that story and how he like, told the story of when they would go to bed and Nicole would say, I love you, and he wouldn't respond because his good ear was laying down on the pillow. Uh, you need to go back just to listen to that story. Um, this spring, he's gone to a doctor, he's got a hearing aid, and, and it's great, and he, he can hear now in both ears. An unintended byproduct of that story has been men from our church coming forward and collectively admitting, hey, my body's breaking down. And so we've heard story after story of how men are starting to admit, like, hey, I, I, maybe I should get this or that checked out. And so I want to share one such story with you that we heard that happened a few years ago. Uh, a friend of mine, who I will not name, um, shared with me how his eyesight was deteriorating. And it was actually his wife who shared it with me, which I won't name her either, but he gave me permission to share this. So when they were first married, uh, she bought him tickets to, his, to go see his favorite NFL team right? And they were playing the Denver Broncos in the preseason. And so since they were a newlywed couple living on a newlywed budget, they were way up high, right? They were in the nosebleed seats and they were on the Broncos side. And so when they sat down, she began scanning the sideline to see Peyton Manning. At the time, he was the most famous player on the Broncos team. So she started looking around to see if she could find Peyton Manning. So as soon as she found number 18, she nudged her husband and said, look, there's there's Peyton Manning. To which he responded, how can you possibly know that's Peyton Manning? Well, she, she was offended because she thought he was saying, women don't know anything about football. Like, how can you possibly know anything about football? To which she responded, well, I know his number. That's why I know it's Peyton Manning. Uh, and then things began to get clear what the argument was really about. And, and he said, you can't see the player's numbers from here. That's not possible. She responded by saying, well, maybe you can't, but I can. <laughs> so this conversation lasted for a few days and they go back home and she takes him 
to see her optometrist. And after a, a brief examination, she said something along the lines of, sir, legally, I can't allow you to drive. Uh, his eyesight was so bad, at least from far away, that legally he should not have been able to have his driver's license at the time. Now, he was shocked. He was really caught off guard because not only did he think he had great vision, he thought he had perfect vision. I think she at one time said that he would even brag about how good his vision was, which looking back is pretty funny, right? In hindsight, no pun intended. If you've ever looked through a pair of binoculars, let's say you, have perfect, you do have perfect vision. If you've ever looked through a pair of binoculars or a microscope or a telescope, you can relate. Because as you're trying to focus in, even uh, if, if it will make it very clear, it could get more blurry before it gets more clear. And my friend was living life in the blurry, blurry zone until he got that pair of glasses. Now this, I believe, is what is happening in our text this morning. Different groups of people are seeing Jesus, but they don't see him clearly. And as our text unfolds, I believe that they are focusing in on him to see him as he is and as he claims to be. But at first glance, it doesn't appear to be so. Let's just look at the things that are said about him or to him through John 7. We see he is a good man. No, he's leading people astray. How is it that this man has learning? At one point they say, you have a demon or you're crazy. Then they say, can it be that the authorities know that this is the Christ? When the Christ appears, will they do more than this man? This really is the prophet. This is the Christ. But is the Christ to come from Galilee? Some wanted to kill him, and some thought he could actually be the Christ. So they're all over the map in John 7. But these things shouldn't surprise us. Towards the end of John chapter six, he had just fed the, the multitudes, right? And he says something along the lines of, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. To which they respond, how will he give us his flesh, <laughs> right? Just crazy, crazy, hard to accept teachings. But here in John seven, Jesus reveals more of himself and his mission and his purpose. And we're gonna see how the three groups of people got it wrong but how Jesus clarifies things for them. Now, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but I wanna say again that the purpose of John is found in John 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything throughout the whole book of John, including chapter seven, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have life in his name. So John is writing here in chapter seven to confront our unbelief. He's confronting your unbelief and he's confronting my unbelief. And he does that through these three groups of people we're gonna look at. The first are the brothers of Jesus. In verse one, let's start reading. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to, to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I love how John writes here because he walks us right into the line of thinking of his brothers. Now, these would have been his half-brothers, right? Those born to both Mary and Joseph. And we see from Mark 6.3 that this would have been James, the author of the New Testament, Joseph, Judas, not the betrayer, and Simon. 
Again, we ended John 6 with many of his disciples turning away from him. He, he fed the crowds, he did this miracle, and many walked away. Now, not the 12, but the masses because of his hard to accept teachings. Now, coming off of this, the, the feeding of the thousands with the kids' lunchables, he says a few hard things and boom, they're gone. So his, his half-brothers are watching this unfold and they're thinking, all right, Jesus needs our help, right? Like that's their line of thinking. How do we make Jesus great again? Like how do we, we gotta make him famous. So what do we do? This is their line of thinking. Ah, the Feast of Booths, right? So the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is when people would set up small booths for themselves to remind themselves of God's faithfulness and provision to the people of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. To remind them that they used to be in slavery, but then God saved them. And while they were in the wilderness, God still provided and cared for them. It happened just after the harvest of the grapes and olives. So this was a celebratory feast and it lasted for seven days. Like they knew how to party, right? So people all over would come to Jerusalem. Those outside the city would build, again, these temporary structures with, with sticks and with leaves. Uh, if you were in this city, you might build it on your roof or in the city square. And they would do this for an entire week. Now, what a perfect time to hype Jesus, right? His stock is dropping faster than the S&P 500 this year. Like he, he needs a shot in the arm. Everybody is leaving. Everybody is leaving. So they look to him and say, go, go to where everybody is and put on a show. Go do your thing. Like in Shark Tank, I don't know if you guys like Shark Tank, like when you see a really good product and you're like, why didn't I think of that? Like everybody's gonna love this product. Let's let everyone know about this product because everybody's gonna want it. That's how they're treating Jesus. Like you got the cool thing that everybody's gonna love. Let's make him famous again by putting him before all the people. And the very next line that John delivers is not lacking in shock value. He says in verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now this is a line that, even those who have been walking with Jesus for decades, it, it ought to make us tremble and stop and consider, man, what, how did they get this wrong? In a worldly sense, it seems that they were just impressed by Jesus, right? That he could do cool things and that they needed to make him famous. Like they liked the things he could do, but they were unwilling to stake his life, their lives on him. If this was the treasure of the, the parable of the treasure in the field, they are vastly undervaluing the worth of Jesus. Now let's keep reading in verse six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now there's a lot we could unpack here, but the gist of it is this. The world hates Jesus because he calls out its works. The world doesn't hate his brothers because they look just like the world. The world does not hate them because they look just like it that must have stung, right? Like this is a new revelation for them. Now, just a small note on verses nine and 10. So we see Jesus do this at times, right? When he says, I'm not gonna go to the feast and then he goes. So is Jesus lying here? I wanna 
clarify and say, no, I don't believe that he's lying. I, I believe that he is saying, I'm not going to the feast in the way that you want me to go. Right, like for, for them, they thought to make Jesus famous that they had to put him in front of everyone, have him perform these really cool tricks and everyone is gonna fall in love with Jesus again. But he knew from verse one and chapter five that people wanted to kill him. So he wasn't gonna do that. But what does he do? He goes up in private. He doesn't go up in public like the way that they want him to, but he does go and he goes in private. So how do we see Jesus coming into focus for his brothers? And the answer is this, that they start to realize that mere association with Jesus does not equal saving faith. Mere association with Jesus does not equal saving faith. At some point, I do believe that his brothers likely came to faith in him. Certainly James did, right? The author of the New Testament letter. And I believe that probably happened for his other brothers. But at this moment, they aren't there yet. And so I must ask for us, do you, do we just have a casual, mere association type of relationship with Jesus? Have you undervalued the worth of Jesus in your life? Does the world like you because you look like the world? That's the one that stings, right? Like Jesus's brothers, have you been around, your, uh, around Jesus or the church your entire life, but misunderstand his purpose and his mission in the world? These are all potential forms of unbelief. Mere association with him doesn't equal saving faith. Now, on the one hand, it's difficult for us to believe or think that it's possible that for 30 years or close to 30 years, his brothers could be around him. Like they, they, they played with him. They grew up with him. They, they, they knew him from a very young age and yet denied the fact that he was God. And then on the other hand, we see it happen to people in our lives, don't we? We see people that we know that have walked with Jesus for, for years and decades and at some point just decided, I mean, this isn't for me anymore. And it breaks our heart, right? It's good for us to ask ourselves, man, what, what is our hope on? Church attendance doesn't save us. Bible studies don't save us. Men's and women's studies, prayer time, like they don't equate to saving faith. What are you hoping in today? Does the world consider you a friend? So that's one, that's, that's the brothers of Jesus. The second group of people that I wanna look at are the Jews, the religious leaders. Let's pick up in verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, in case you're wondering, they weren't looking for him to see if he wanted to play tic-tac-toe, right? They weren't looking for him to hang out and have a good time. We know from verse one, we know from chapter five that they were seeking to kill him. And the activeness in the verb here reminds us that they're not just saying, hey, have you guys seen Jesus? They're going from person to person saying, where is this man? Where is Jesus? They want to arrest him and they want to kill him. And verse 13 is another indicator for us that the crowds knew this. They knew that to speak openly of Jesus was to put a bullseye on themselves, but he was so captivating that they couldn't help themselves. So they muttered about him, right? They, they whispered to themselves about him. Now let's keep going, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews even, they marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not yet mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, this is similar language to what got Jesus in trouble back in chapter five, right? He's using language associating himself with the Father, saying he's a spokesman for God, but yet they marvel at him because he hasn't studied the way that they have studied. So students would study under rabbis who studied under rabbis who studied under rabbis. And oftentimes they would pass tradition after tradition. Sometimes that came straight from the scriptures. Other times it was extra stuff that they added, but they would pass this down. And Jesus didn't fit that mold. Jesus didn't fit that mold. It would like me being like walking into Sam Perry's class and teaching an awesome lecture on sociology and, and it being good, like it being actually good. And then thinking, wow, how this man hasn't studied, which is true. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Jesus obviously did. And then they're wondering, how, how does this man have learning? They knew where he grew up. They knew his family. They knew his brothers. How is this possible? Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung helps us under, understand this idea, why they would have been so upset with a helpful illustration. Now, do we have any kids in the room? We do have some kids in the room, but we certainly have some parents in the room that you guys are gonna know how this plays out. So imagine parents and those of you who just know kids in general, what might happen when one of your children goes into the room of another child with a message on behalf of dad? Like, how does that go? Like they walk into sibling B's room and it's, uh, hey, dad needs you to go do the dishes or dad needs you to go uh, clean your room or mow the grass or whatever. How does that typically go? Oh, great Harold from our father. I can't wait to obey and honor the words that have come from your beautiful lips, right? That, that's how it goes, right? No, get out of here, you're not dad. Leave me alone, right? But it goes worse if the message isn't from dad. Like how, do, how does it go if they walk into their siblings' rooms and, and they just say, go brush your teeth or go take your bath or go do your homework? I mean, there's things probably getting thrown, right? Now, when, you, when, the, when the child speaks on behalf of mom or, or of dad, it's a matter of faith for, for child number two, right? They have to question, did, did dad really say did I need to go weed the grass, weed the garden? Did dad really say that I need to do my, did dad really say I need to go do the dishes? That, that, like he's asking, actually questioning, are you a real messenger from the father, right? So we, 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 have, we deal with this in our families, right? And they, they dealt with this in their Jewish family. So many of them listened as this sibling might listen when sibling number one walks into the room and acts confident and pretends like they, they know what they're talking about and they have a message from the father. And so they say, imagine that they say, not only do I have a message from the father, but I and the father are one. <laughs> right? Like, okay. Like if, if windows are not intact, like so, somebody's getting thrown through a window or like, for sure, bones are getting broken. You are out of your mind. This helps us understand what the Jews might have been thinking, right? Who is this man 
who claims to have a message from God. So we see Jesus coming into, the, into focus here for Jewish leaders and plain and clear, he's telling them that you are either with me, that they are with Jesus or they oppose God. He's drawing a line and he's saying, you're with me or you're against the father. Later in the chapter, the Pharisees are going to send officers to arrest him. And when they come back empty handed, the Pharisees are upset. And they say in verse 45, why did you not bring him? And in verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Like even the officers are, are marveling at him. Like, how do we arrest this guy? No one speaks like him. But unfortunately, the hatred of the, the Pharisees and Jewish leaders increased all the more towards Jesus. They continued to deny that the message he was bringing was actually true. Now, if you're here this morning, it's unlikely that you are going to publicly and brazenly proclaim hatred for Jesus like this. But I wonder if the enemy is causing some of us to doubt the message that Jesus has brought, some of the things that he said. Can Jesus be trusted? Like, did God really say that I need to honor my father and mother? Did God really say that I need to be faithful to my spouse? Did God really say to forgive those who've wronged me? Did God really say to pay my taxes, all of my taxes? Did God really say to love those who hate me? Did God really say that those who love the world are enemies of God? Is, is Jesus really sufficient to cover my sin, my guilt, and my shame. I know there are some here this morning that doubt some of these things. And I'm here to say that yes, yes, Jesus can be trusted. The things that we shouldn't be trusting right now are our feelings or our, our emotions or our, the lies of the enemy or the shortcut that we want to take. Like these are forms of unbelief. I think it would be helpful, a helpful discipline for us to create in us that we begin to doubt our doubts. Like that we, the first thing that we are, are trusting is not the lies that we believe or the enemy speaking to us, but it's the doubts that we have. Like what if we first called those into question? Like when we start to wonder, is God good? What if we doubted like, are my thoughts pure? <laughs> like what if we doubted our doubts? We like the Jews are either with Jesus or we are against God. And so finally, I want us to look at the crowds at large. So let's go back to verses 12 and 13. I'm gonna read this again. I want you to see this through the lens of the crowds now. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one sp spoke openly of him. Now jump down to verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I healed a man's whole body? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now jump down to verse 31. I'm gonna steal one of Jeremy's verses for next week. Yet many believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man 
has done. So let's do an overview real quick of, of John 7 at this point. His first interaction is with those who have known him his entire earthly life. They think he's, he's got some cool tricks, but they don't go all in on him. Next, we see the Jews who want to maintain control and order, at least the way that they think uh, it needs to be maintained. And Jesus disrupts that. So they want to get rid of him. But this third group is all over the place. They see the miraculous things he's done the authority with which he speaks, and they want to believe in him, but they're kind of fearful of what that might cost them. But all three groups of people are looking for the Messiah, and none of them expected him to look like Jesus looks, or talk like Jesus talks, or behave like he behaves. He's shattering their preconceived notions of what the Christ is supposed to do and say. Now, it's scattered throughout this chapter, but it's more evident here. The similarities to John chapter five are real. For the real reason the Jews sought to kill Jesus was because of the miracle he performed back there in chapter five, when he healed the invalid uh, who had been um, paralyzed for 38 years. And then the things he said right after that, that he's speaking on behalf of his father, that he and the father are one. He healed this man And then he said that God was his father. In both chapters, we see the religious leaders clinging tightly to their traditions that they've created and held over the years and the lengths to which they will go in order to shield those traditions. And the crowds are confused. Who's trying to kill you, Jesus? So he has to go back to that story in John chapter five. He has to say like, man, you guys even break the thing that you're you're accusing me of. If a child needs to be circumcised on the eighth day and that turns out to be the Sabbath, You've got to choose. Do you circumcise this child or do you honor the Sabbath? And so he's saying to them, why is it different? Like, I'm, I healed a man's whole body. He needed to be healed. Who cares what day of the week it's on? He's saying, you make these same judgments. What, what a good argument, right? And it stuns the crowd. It stuns them. So how does he come into focus for them So some, but not all of them, but some hear the words of Jesus and they move from fear to faith. They were once afraid of the Jews, some of them at least, but now many believed in him from verse 31. We see them going from being afraid to talk of him openly and saying things like he has a demon to could he really be the Christ? And when the Christ comes, will will he he say things and do things more than what this man has done? Now, many of them are still gonna judge him wrongly, They're still looking for signs first. But even if that binocular dial that I talked about, right, like it's just moving one degree more towards clarity. That's a good thing for even the crowds. Now for us this morning, do you find yourself like much of the crowd trying to straddle the fence with Jesus? Do you find it uh, comfortable like to, to associate with Jesus when things are good or when it's easy? And then do you run from him when it's less convenient or less profitable for you. Have you heard enough from Jesus to follow him by faith? Now, John Piper is gonna argue that pride is at the root of the unbelief of all the people represented in John 7. He says this, you cannot praise Jesus if the root of your life is to be praised by other people. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. And if pride is at the root Faith cannot be. They are unbelievers. Faith at its core is a humble gladness in the grace 
of the God of grace. For the crowds, the Jews, and the brothers of Jesus, the ultimate goal was the pursuit of exaltation from other people rather than receiving the God of grace. So for the brothers, the miracles of Jesus get them human praise. For the Jews, the miracles of Jesus threaten their human praise. For the crowds, the the miracles of Jesus conflict with their pursuit of human praise. It was forcing them to make a decision. But written over all of them is how can you believe when you seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And the answer is you can't. You cannot. You can't seek the glory of God and the glory of others. So which is it for you and me? The the solution for all of what we've seen this morning is Jesus. Pride, the fear of man, unbelief, or whatever the Holy Spirit is showing you in this moment, Jesus is the answer to all of it. Why wasn't it Jesus' time yet? Like, why did he push back on his brothers? Why did he rebuke them and tell them that he couldn't go to the feast with him? Because he didn't come to be hyped, He didn't come to gain a large following. He didn't come to perform a bunch of cool tricks. He didn't come to get the crowds in trouble with the Jews. Like he didn't want to create conflict for them. Jesus came to die. That was his purpose. His face was set from the beginning to go to the cross for the sins of those who were far away from him. Your sin, my sin, the sins of his brothers, the sins of the crowd, All of that had separated us and them from God, our maker. And when he arose on the third day, he proved that he's victorious over sin and death. The grave could not hold him. So maybe you identify with someone from our text this morning, or maybe you you just feel defeated by life. Maybe getting here this morning was a challenge. At least you were on time. That was a joke, yeah. Maybe it's a tough season for you. Maybe you've had a hard week and just, you know, again, getting here was hard. But John wrote in our text this morning, I want to remind you, to address our unbelief, yours and mine, then that we would find life in the name of Jesus. That's why he wrote. So whether you've believed in Jesus for years or for a few minutes or whether you're still wrestling with these things even now, I invite you to find and embrace true and everlasting life that's found in Jesus this morning. So what can we do in light of our text this morning? I've got a few things that that you can jot down. First, you can pray for a greater understanding of who Jesus is. In uh, chapter six, verse 44, we see that no one comes to Jesus unless, unless it's granted by the Father. So pray that God would give you greater understanding and pray, for that, pray that for those in your life too, that they would have greater understanding of who Jesus is. Number two, repent of and confess your pride, especially the ways that we seek glory from others. So the people pleaser, the look at me, I'm awesome guy, uh, the control freak, uh, the not willing to commit crowd, they ultimately pursue the glory of others first. We all do this. So just confess that. Confess of the way you do that and turn from it. Number three, believe in the risen Christ. Is this redundant yet? Believe, believe, believe. There's a reason for that. John did that intentionally because we're so quick to fall back into unbelief. Look to Jesus and believe. Number four, allow yourself to be surprised by him. Is there space 
in your doctrine or your theology, what you know, is there space to be wrong? Is there space to be caught off guard by who Jesus is and what the scriptures say about him? Is it possible that your desires compete with God's desires for you? The answer is yes, but will you admit that today? Be surprised by Jesus. Number five, walk by the spirit. So we see in Ephesians 1.13 that you've received, if you're in Jesus, the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So walk by the spirit. And finally, marvel at him. Over and over, you see this a recurring thing throughout John. There's, there's marveling and there's belief. Not always, but belief follows marveling. They marvel at him and they believe. They marvel and they believe. And that can continue after belief. You believe in Jesus, we, we should continue to marvel at him. Like how, how can we get bored with Jesus? We should not get bored with this man, with God. Marvel at him. Discipline yourself to be wowed by him as you study the scriptures. Now the glory of man might feel good for a moment, but it will fade and you'll be left with nothing. And who are we really trying to impress anyways? Don't impress me. I I shouldn't be trying to impress you. What are we doing? It's always worth it to pursue the glory of God rather than the glory of man. So let us set our minds on Christ and seek the things that are above together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the whole book of John. I thank you for the way that he's written to make it easy to understand and clear for us what you're calling us to do and who Jesus is. And so we thank you for Jesus that man, he did not back down, even in hard moments. It seemed like everyone misunderstood him. Those closest to him, those who hated him, those who were just acquaintances with him. It seemed that everyone misunderstood him. And yet his face was set because he knew he had, he had something to accomplish. And that was to go to the cross for us, for sinners. And so God, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that for my friends in this room that, that we would uh, submit before you um, our desires to be please, pleasing to others, that, uh, to seek the approval of others. Would you crucify that in us? And take that from us. And I pray that as a body, as a church family, that we would encourage one another to spur one another on to seek your glory over the glory of others. Help us to do this, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.